Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, John Perkins is an author and activist whose 10 books on global intrigue, shamanism, and transformation, including Touching the Jaguar, Shapeshifting, and the classic Confessions of an Economic Hitman, have been on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 70 weeks, sold over 2 million copies, and are published in 35 languages. As chief economist at a major consulting firm, John Perkins advised the world Bank, United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, U.S. and other governments. He regularly speaks at universities, economic forums, and shamanic gatherings around the world, and is a founder and board member of the nonprofit organizations the Pachamama Alliance and Dream Change. John Perkins, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David. Great to be with you. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing what you're doing. I greatly enjoyed this new book, Touching the Jaguar, which uh, people can find at touchingthejaguarbook.com. Uh, I, I was I was surprised to learn, maybe I should have known this, that uh, early in your career you were in the Peace Corps, uh, but, the, but the mission wasn't particularly peaceful, was it? Well... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was in the deep in the Amazon. It's 1968 to 1971. I was in Ecuador two of those years in the Amazon. One year up in the Andes with indigenous people. And I think what you're referring to is when I was in the with the indigenous people in the Amazon. Uh, there was a lot of warfare going on between the tribes, which are now recognized as nations. Um, you know, there were hunters and gatherers living very primitive lives, what we would call primitive, uh, and. Hunters and gatherers need a lot of territory, so to defend their territories, they often fought their neighbors. And I was there during a time when there was a there was a lot of that kind of thing going on. Yeah, I, I had something else in mind actually, which was that you found out that the purpose of your mission was actually to help uh, clear the forest and move people into it uh, for political reasons. Wasn't that the case? Well, that's. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, I was ostensibly sent there to help form credit and savings co-ops. I'd graduated from business school. The irony of that was I was sent to a place where nobody had any money. Everything was done by barter. You know, your, your bananas for my papayas, et cetera. And, and I, I arrived there, and I announced that I'm there to help them form a credit and savings co-op. And, of course, they're extremely skeptical, like, well, what am I really there for? And it didn't take me too long to, to understand that the Peace Corps had sent me to this community uh, because there was going to be a, a way station for uh, surveying equipment and, and food and other supplies to go deeper into the jungle where the Peace Corps was involved in a USAID-funded program to move poor people from high into the Andes where they were, where the, where the U.S. government thought they were being uh, subjected to propaganda from Castro's Cuba to become communists. So, so the United States had this mission of moving them deep into the Amazon to colonize that area, to farm it. And as it turns out, it was not their territory to do that with. It, was, it belonged to the indigenous people. And, and the Ecuadorians and the U.S. government didn't, didn't recognize that. And they fly over in planes and see these airplanes and see these vast jungles and say, well, nobody lives there. The fact of the matter is, hunters and gatherers lived there, and they needed a lot of jungle. They didn't cut the jungle, so it wasn't obvious that they were 
living there. They were hunting and gathering. So there was, yeah, so there was a tremendous resentment and warfare between the indigenous people and the colonists coming in. The other aspect was that you really can't grow crops well in, the, in that area of the Amazon. The soil is very thin. Contrary to public opinion, to, to, to public perception, uh, much of the Amazon is the second least fertile place in the world and next to the Great Desert. Uh, and so when you cut the trees, uh, the soil just washes away, very thin topsoil washes away in the rain and leaves you with something akin to um, clay that when the sun hits it, bakes into bricks. And so by trying to farm that land, you basically destroy it. It was, it was, a, it was a fiasco, really. The U.S. government was deeply involved in and and you write that this was modeled on the the Homestead Act and the and the settling of the United States, which uh, was of course uh, also based on the idea that that nobody lived there, but it was that that sort of came out of a conception of who counts as somebody and who counts as nobody, right? It wasn't wasn't actually a misunderstanding that there was nobody there. Exactly, David. Once again, you know, going into these territories where the local people lived off hunting buffalo and and other things, uh, lived off the land, and, and suddenly these farmers go in and they, they kill the buffalo and, uh, and, and start cultivating the land. And of course, at the beginning, it, it, seemed to be, it seemed to at least be working. Unlike the Amazon, the soils were in the Great Plains that you could farm these areas, but you were taking it from the native peoples, and you were destroying the local ecosystems, including the buffalo and all the ecosystems that go along with that. And then, as we all know, in the long run, the big, uh, the big industrial farms took over and began destroying their land in their own way by using lots of chemicals. Uh, a lot of times, uh, people who become whistleblowers or become journalists who speak out about something they were involved in uh, have tried initially to go through proper channels, as they're always advised to do. And and you did uh, register complaints and, and advice regarding this misguided program, and uh, not much came of it, right? Yeah, I wrote letters to Peace Corps office in Quito, the capital of Ecuador, and, and also to the office in Washington, D.C., and uh, I wrote to USAID uh, in both of those places. I, I tried to get the word out. Nobody really wanted to hear it, uh, and including the Peace Corps volunteers, my friends who were deeply involved in this program, uh, because many of them were in the Peace Corps at the time because they wanted to avoid the draft. They didn't believe in the war in Vietnam. They did not want the program to end because they might be sent to Vietnam after that. Who knew? But the officials in Washington and in Quito, you know, they had kind of staked their careers on this. This was creating a job for them. And they, and, and there was this huge movement that was anti-communist. Che Guevara had only recently, within a year or so, been, been killed in, in neighboring Bolivia, uh, almost neighboring Bolivia, and so there was this strong, strong anti-communist sentiment that the red tide was going to take over the world in Latin America. And so nobody really wanted to hear that this program wasn't working. Um, and so all my letters fell on deaf ears. And even today I find this, when some of these people read these books, they, 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 they say, well, wait a minute, that land is, is fertile. They still don't know. And yet it's very common knowledge now that these, these are... These are the most infertile, the second most infertile lands in the world. I think with regard to the killing of Che Guevara, we can now say it's well established that the CIA was behind that, can we not? 
you know, Felix Rodriguez, CIA agent, wrote a book about it. He was called before the American, uh, the Un-American Activity Committee and released from the CIA and told that he could not lie under oath. And so he he shared that he had been in charge of that operation. He was a, he was a CIA agent who left the CIA and then eventually wrote about it. Felix Rodriguez, I think you can still find his book. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so he was in charge of the operation. He didn't pull the trigger. Uh, because he was told that the trigger had to be pulled by a Bolivian soldier, so he commanded a Bolivian soldier to actually pull the trigger that that, that uh, executed uh, Che. But they had first captured him, and and Rodriguez got uh, quite a lot of time talking to Che while he was captured. Yeah, we in in the book "Touching the Jaguar," John Perkins, you describe some of your work as an economic hitman that some people may be familiar with already from uh, "Confessions of an Economic Hitman." But you you describe threatening world leaders with with assassination and and referring to Mossadegh and Allende and Arbenz and Lumumba and Diem and and other cases uh, in order to to see if the threat. Uh, is enough to get what's wanted, uh, rather than having to go through with an assassination and a and a coup, right? Yeah, I was fairly diplomatic in the way I did this. So, so basically, my message to world leaders, uh, leaders of countries that had resources that corporations wanted, like oil, and, and I, we were trying to get them to cooperate with us. And my basic message was, hey, sign off on this World Bank loan of a million, hundreds of millions. Today, it would be translated as billions of dollars. It will pay our corporations. All the money will go to our corporations to build infrastructure projects, power plants, and industrial parks and highways, etc. In your country, sign off on this loan, and you and your friends who who own the industries of the wealthy families who who will benefit from infrastructure, you'll make a lot of money. Of course, I didn't say this, but they all knew that their country would be stuck with horrible debt, and money would have to be diverted from healthcare and education and other social services to pay off the debt, so the majority of people would suffer. A few of the rich families would gain, including the ones who signed off on this loan. And at the same time, I could remind them of what happened to President Arbenz of Guatemala, Allende of Chile, as you mentioned, and Mossadegh of Iran, and Lamunda of the Congo, and Ziem of Vietnam, and on and on and on. People that did not play our game, that did not sign off on these types of things, and then the jackals would go in. And these are people, CIA agents or assets at least, who either overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. Two of my clients, the democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and and Omar Chirijos, the head of state of uh, Panama, had a lot of integrity. They refused to play the game, and they both went down in very suspicious airplane crashes within uh, less than three months of each other. Uh, I have no doubt, as most of the world has no doubt, that these were assassinations. They weren't accidents. These these were both in 1981, correct? Roldos of Ecuador and, and Torrijos of Panama uh, were people you had, had met with who were subsequently uh, killed uh, very likely by by the U.S. government, right? Yeah, probably indirectly by the U.S. government. The U.S. government at that time was something called Operation Condor, which was a CIA-sponsored operations throughout Latin America, and and we had a tremendous connection with the military dictators of, of places like Argentina and Chile, and it, it's very likely that we recruited some of their agents 
uh, to actually do the dirty work. So if it was if a smoking gun was discovered, it would be an Argentine smoking gun, not a U.S. smoking gun. But uh, you know, the U.S. has been very, very clever at doing some of these things. And incidentally, I, I want to say I'm a very, very loyal American. Um, my, 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 I have ancestors who fought in the American Revolution. We go back a long time in this country. Uh, and I, I talk about these things because I, 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 I'm ashamed, right? and I think we can do better than this. We don't need to be involved in these sorts of activities to, to, to be a true democracy and a, and a champion of democracy and, and uh, human rights around the world. We, we should not be involved in these sorts of things. But we have, and, and mm. people like Secretary of State Henry Kissinger have admitted to our involvement in a number of these cases, including the, 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 the catastrophe that happened with the Yende in Chile. I appreciate that very much. I'd like to make clear that I'm a loyal human and believe that loyalty to nations is going to get us all killed and that the United States has never resembled a democracy or or spread much of it around the world and ought to try to do so by example rather than by arming dictators. But uh, my, the, the, the real question that comes in my mind in, in reading this account is, is you know, you look through the, the, the long lists that people make of the coups and assassinations. How long would the list be of, of the threats that worked, of the coups that weren't needed because governments were, were persuaded by the threat of assassination to do what the, what the CIA or the, or, or the U.S. economic powers wanted? Huge. You know, we have created, and I, 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 David, I, I agree with you, we're, we're, we're really not a democracy. We, 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 we claim to be, we, or we claim to be a republic. We, uh, I want to see, I'd like to see us become a leader in that. And first, we have to start at home. There's no question. And we're, that's becoming more and more obvious to us as the, <laughs> as the justice system is, is usurped and co-opted and, and so on and so forth. But, yeah, um, you know, we, the United States, or has become the greatest empire in the history of the world, let's face it. And actually, it's more of a corporate empire than a really a, a traditional U.S. Empire, country empire, although this corporate empire is totally supported by the U.S. military and our economic policies and our, and our so-called intelligence services, our secret services. So it, but it's, a, it's the world's uh, largest empire ever, no question about it. And it's very disturbing the, the way we've done that. And, you know, we, we, we were doing it through the traditional means of military intervention up through the Vietnam War. But we began to see that that wasn't working. Korea and Vietnam, we really didn't get anywhere near what we wanted. So we began to see that the way that economic hitmen were doing this, through using death and fear uh, and a lot of uh, perception, a lot of propaganda to promote our ways, it was a extremely successful, and you didn't need to go to war or have the threats of war. And that worked for a long time, from the end of the Vietnam War in the mid-70s, up until, you know, pretty recently. But then around the time that, that I think, basically around the time of the first Bush administration and going up through the Clinton administration, the military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it, uh, became concerned that they weren't participating in all the profits that were being made out of this other way <laughs> of exploiting countries. And so, you know, they were looking for an excuse to get back into the game. 9-11 created that excuse. And since then, uh, unfortunately, both 
both ways have been used. So we still carry on the economic hitman process of using debt and, and, and fear, and our own corporations now pitting countries against each other to ask them to offer better tax incentives or labor, cheap labor rates for, for them to locate their factories in these countries. At the same time, we're now going to, we've gone, we've gone big time back into military intervention, as we've seen, in, especially in, in the Middle East, but it's, it's happening in many, many other countries also. What, what did you oh, mean? Sorry, go ahead. And, and David, as you said, the countless numbers of countries that have bought into this empire because they knew the threats were there, it's almost immeasurable. And I mentioned some of the presidents that were taken down, but what I... What goes beyond that is countless numbers of lower officials, uh, ministers of state, secretaries of, of the finance, and judges and other people that have been taken out because they didn't play the game. Yeah. Well, what did you make of this uh, Bay of Piglets, as some people have called a recent uh, failed invasion of, of Venezuela? Uh, this is sort of running, long-standing, attempted coup in Venezuela is the is the incompetence outdoing the the immorality in in some cases do you do you look at some of these events with with some uh, professional uh, scorn as well as as moral <laughs> well yeah you know I, I I don't know any more than what uh, I've learned in the press I haven't been to Venezuela for maybe seven or eight years I didn't even end it so much time there uh, and uh, it's hard to say. You know, obviously what's going on in, internally in Venezuela is terrible. It's, it's a, the, the government there today is a terrible catastrophe. Uh, and uh, I think we have to remember that Chavez became popular because uh, his predecessors were incredibly corrupt. And the country, the rich became extremely rich, and the poor were getting poorer and poorer. And so Chavez came into office. He had a lot of charisma. Uh, he made a lot a number of policy mistakes, but he did some good things, education, health care, improved for poor people under him, and he had charisma. But then when he was replaced by this current regime, there's no charisma there. There seems to be extreme corruption there. And I think part of what keeps this current president in power is the fact that the military is afraid that if he goes out of power, uh, they will all be put on trial and found guilty of some pretty uh, brutal aspects. But for the United States to become involved in this, and, and I don't know officially what that, that most recent raid, who, who was behind that, uh, it, it seems extremely unprofessional. But for the United States to, to be, be involved in this in any way, shape, or manner is, is a huge mistake because um, really it's a very, very deeply internal problem within Venezuela that needs to be handled that way. So you, John Perkins, you have a very different perspective now from what you had some decades back, and you describe in, in the book, Touching the Jaguar, this sort of gradual transition uh, from hitman to, to fellow man, from and, and, and sort of overlapping, trying to be both at, at once, uh, and, and how, how shamanism uh, helped you uh, change your perspective. Can you, can you talk about how you went through that process? Sure, David. I'd love to. Uh, so when I was a Peace Corps volunteer back in 1969, my, I, I almost I was dying in the Amazon. I was very, very sick, and I couldn't get out. It would take me three days to get to the nearest medical facility through very, very difficult conditions, and I, I could barely stand up. A shaman healed me one night, basically by showing me that I had a perception that the food and drink that I was participating in with these people, these indigenous people, 
I had the perception that uh, the voice, like my mother saying, it'll kill you. As an example, they don't drink water. It's pure water because they know that the rivers have organic matter. It's dangerous to drink the water. So the women make a kind of beer called chicha by chewing and spitting manicot root beer. And then it becomes quite alcoholic and they can add water to it. Well, I had to drink a lot of that because you've got to rehydrate a lot of it in the jungle. There wasn't anything else to drink. But anyway, on this traumatic journey one night, I saw that I would hear this voice every time I drank these drinks, drinks and, 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 and ate some very strange foods. I hear a voice saying, it'll kill you. At the same time, I saw how incredibly healthy the schwa are, how robust and vital. And so I learned on that one night that it was a perception that was making me sick, not the food and drink itself. Changed everything for me. The shaman then basically demanded I become his apprentice. I graduated from business school in 1969. There was no future in shamanism in those days. But he saved my life, so I yeah. did. And for years after, I, I studied shamanism in many other countries, Indonesia, Iran, Egypt, all over Latin America. And I also discovered that not only shamans, but also psychotherapists, quantum physicists, advertising people know that we create reality through altering perception. All about perception. And, you know, as an economic hitman, my job was to use a perception that I believed in, that I've been taught in business school, that investing large amounts of money in infrastructure makes our economy grow. And statistically, we can show that it does. But it's a perception that's based on false economic statistics, which is called GDP, which really measures the wealth of the rich. So if you take the United States, for example, we know that three individuals have as much wealth as half the population of the United States. If those three individuals are making 10% return on their investment and half the population is losing 3%, you're still going to show a GDP growth of something slightly under 5%. Yeah. And, and, and but, destroying ecosystems counts as growing as well. <laughs> exactly. And so at the beginning, for many years, I only did this for 10 years. I was playing three or five of the chief economists at a big consulting firm. And for the first number of years, I believed in what I was doing because what I'd been taught in business school. But I began to see that it was a false perception. And I began to understand that what we, had did, what we were doing was creating what we call today a death economy, an economic system that is destroying itself. It's, it's based on the perception that the goal is to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental cost. That's a perception that has created a death economy. And I, and I came to understand that the way to change that, to create a life economy, an economy that pays people to clean up pollution and regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle and create new technologies that don't ravage the earth. The way to create that life economy is simply to change our perception, to say that the goal of business and of all of us is to maximize long-term benefits for people and nature. And all it takes is us to turn that perception around from the short-term to the long-term. And in fact, when we do that, we are echoing what indigenous people have done, what most, what human societies have done throughout most of the 250,000 years that we've seen ourselves as humans. All of our ancestors, yours, Dave, mine, everybody's, come from this perception of long-term benefits for ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. It's only been with the, the last blink of a, of a historical eyelash that we've, we've focused on this short-term obsession.
And, and there, there, let to be clear, there are a few limits to changing everything with perception, right? Donald Trump can't drink gallons of bleach and tell himself to perceive that it will work and thereby make it work, can he? Well, no, obviously he can't do that, David, but what he can do is give people a false perception that there's safety in doing that and convince a lot of other people to do it. And, uh, you know, maybe that changes their reality in that they don't die from the virus, they die, they die from drinking poison. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the extreme to which you could take this. But, but what he is doing is creating a perception uh, that, there's a, that, that there's a false way to protect ourselves from the virus. And, and that perception that perception changes a lot of people's reality as to how do they deal how they deal with the situation. I, I talk to a lot of people about trying to end war, and uh, they tell me it's human nature, it's human, it's natural, it's normal, it's inevitable. Uh, and yet you're talking about the 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 length of history and prehistory of the human species, which was hunter gatherer uh, and and had fighting in some cases, but didn't have anything that resembled modern war and that that's the vast bulk of of who we've been as a species right it is and you know these the wars that indigenous people fought were were just to protect their their territory they were more what we would call i think little uh incidents <laughs> um and for the most part there were some wars but I, what's fascinating is that uh, about the time i was a peace store volunteer in ecuador the late 60s the u.s oil companies Texaco and especially were, were coming in and, and destroying the forest. And so the indigenous people had to change their perception from my neighbors are my enemies to the enemy is the oil and mining company. And uh, I have to join forces with my with my with what I used to perceive as my enemies are now my allies. Right. And so they formed federations to stand up to these mining and oil companies. And then they understood, well, it really isn't the mining and oil companies that's the problem. It's the dream of the modern world. It's that perception of short-term profits that require a lot of the things that come out of out of mining and, and oil operations. Yeah. And so that's when they, they reached out to me and they asked me to form a partnership uh, with people in, in, in our countries to work with them to change the dream of the modern world, to change the perception of the modern world to move to a life economy. We've got two minutes left. John Perkins, what can people do who want to learn more, who want to get involved, who want to help out with what you're working on? Well, exactly why I wrote this book, you know, Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life in the World. That's the subtitle. I've written five books on shamanism and indigenous people and four books on economics and, and global intrigue. And this book is a bridge between them. And it, it tells a lot of true stories about how these things work, but it also offers people a real process, something you can do every day for less than 10 minutes a day, or you can do it once a week. You don't have to do it every single day. That will take you, you personally, into what you can do. So each of us is different. A, 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 a writer like me looks at it differently from a podcast host like you, or a, a, a plumber, or a carpenter, or a parent. But every one of us can use this process to look at what do we really want to do for the rest of our lives to make life better for us individually and also to create a better world for future generations. And there's a process each of us can go through that, that makes this happen. That's in the book, so I would just <laughs> encourage people, you can go to johnperkins.org and order the book from your local bookstore or, or anywhere you want to order it from. And 
If you do a tune, you'll also get a, a workbook that goes along and outlines the daily process that you can practice if you want every day or every other day or however often you want to do it. All right, John Perkins, johnperkins.org. Also, touchingthejaguarbook.com. Uh, the, the book is Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World. John, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David, and keep up your great work. I love your program, and I love what you're doing in the world. Please, please, please keep it up. Same thank to you. you. Same to you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.